Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, episode 48, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. Are you, are you coming to the tree? They strung up a man, they say who murdered three. Strange things that happen here, no stranger would it be if we met at mid. Night in the hanging tree Are you, are you Coming to the tree Where a dead man called out For his love to flee Strange things did happen here No stranger would it be If we met at midnight In the hanging tree Are you, are you Coming to the tree I told you to run so we'd both be free. Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Are you, are you coming to the tree? Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will be taking a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether or not it is required reading. I'm Tom Panneries, uh, your host and the person who chose the book this time around, and with me, as always, is the, hmm, let's see, the mod to my Lucy Gray, maybe because I do feel like running for the hills at this point in our uh, nation's history. Uh, Stella. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it is a political book, so I suppose I'll allow that political commentary just this once. Hello? There's a presidential debate tonight, and we were both, and, and you, you tweeted, you texted me, and we were like, Are you, do you want to watch that instead? I was like, my anxiety is high enough. <laughs> I know, which is, uh, I mean, at least you sent a laughing emoji or a smiling emoji afterwards, because I was a bit concerned. I was like, oh, no, I hope he's okay. But yes, yeah, we're here. I mean, this is chock full politics, so we can just have our own little unique political discussion over here. But we should also say that we also like to call this Hunger Games Zero. Yeah, um, and and we did. This is this is weird because um, we've covered books by the same author before because we we actually just did that with um, Macbeth, and yep. uh, we. Uh, did it with Stephen? No, we didn't do it with Stephen King. We did it with another another author as well. And um, here, though, we have another book in a series. And what's interesting is that we we did the Hunger Games itself back in episode twenty eight. And 
by logic, we would go back and, like, go to Catching Fire next and then mm. Mockingjay if we wanted mm-hmm. to go through the through the entire series. And I'm totally up for that because I remember enjoying really loving Catching Fire. And it was lukewarm to Mockingjay, but I think much like the other two, I think it just is, I, it deserves a reread, you know, that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And the movies didn't help because I actually didn't like I wasn't a huge fan of the two Mockingjay movies. I thought they were too long. But um <laughs> and split into two. Yeah, it was just it was just a it was like kind of bloated. But that aside, this is a prequel. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, oh, and this is pretty much brand new. Uh, you know, I'm gonna get into a little bit of history of it. But um but yeah, like for for both of us, the what is your history with this book is uh is pretty much like a this is it, because this book came out in May. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sent it to me. <laughs> yeah, for a I birthday got, gift. Yeah, this is you sent this to me as a birthday gift. So, um, and and you started reading this one a, a few months ago, right? Yeah. Yep. And you were texting me left and right. Left and right. As you, you do, you do this. You, you, yeah. Maybe you're right because I guess I just did that to Carolyn Coca recently. Of when I finished a book, I was like, "Oh, thank goodness, we finally found the father." And she like sent me three question marks, and then I had to. I guess I just assume everyone's on my own, you know, wavelength of understanding that I'm doing this thing, and aren't you with me? But I'll, I'll try to be better at that in the future, Tom. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So you were texting me about this, and I was like, and then we we kind of mutually came to the agreement that like we could do this as an episode because both of us have read it by that point mm. and I think we have a decent amount to talk about. Yeah. So I decided, yeah, well, let's go ahead and, and put it on there. And then we're recording this pre- pretty quickly after recording our last episode to give ourselves a little bit of a break as we go mm-hmm. into October, which is going to be a bit of a busy month for just in general. Cause it's cause life, you know, Mm-hmm. So, um, anything else that you would like to say about your history with the book or anything like that before I get into the very brief context of the book and some of the reviews it got before I get, and then the plot summary? No, I, I will say that actually I went into it not, I knew nothing about this particular book except that it was a prequel. Mm-hmm. So when it first started out and we were following Coriolanus, I'm like, oh wow, oh, I guess he's our main character, which was actually like almost really refreshing to go in and, and not know anything. So I wasn't tainted by any reviews or I just had no idea what the synopsis was. So that was a unique experience that I almost recommend. You know, especially with any sort of fandom, I think, because as we know, fans can be rabid. And mm. I feel like nowadays, if you see anything, it's going to taint your view. So I just kind of stay away from it. But uh, yeah, Hunger Games Zero. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of the same way. I really had no idea what this was about until I read um, Got It. And then I read the, I just skimmed the dust jacket. And it was like, Corey Lane is snow. I'm like, oh, interesting. It's a. You know, because he's the he was the villain of of the trilogy. So we're going to get into that as well. But yeah, I was kind of in the same boat as you. I just knew it was a prequel, and I was like curious about it. And so yeah, so here we are. And like I said, we did cover Suzanne Collins to some degree when we talked about the Hunger Games in episode twenty eight. So I'm really not going to get too much yeah. into her backstory. 
Um, and there wasn't much about her writing the book. I, I tried to do a little bit of, of research. There was like, you know, some promo stuff from the editor, uh, David Levitan, but for the most part, there weren't very many. She, uh, there was an AP, um, story, Associated Press story in 2019 about, uh, her writing the book and she said with this book I wanted to explore the state of nature who we are and what we perceive is required for our survival she said the reconstruction period 10 years after the war commonly referred to as the dark days and the country of as the country of Panem struggles back to its feet provides fertile ground for characters to grapple with these questions and thereby define their views of humanity yeah because I, I will say that going into this, I actually thought that the prequel was going to be kind of like the setup of Pan Am. Mm. So I thought we were actually going farther back. So that was another surprising thing for me, just that it was 10 years after the war. Yeah, me too. I didn't realize this was going to be as tied to the characters of the Hunger Games as it was. I was expecting something of like, you know, what is the apocalyptic event that eventually led to the creation of Pan Am? Mm -hmm. So... So the book was announced, I think, about a year or two ago, and then it was published on May 19th of 2020. So it's only a few months before we're recording this. It had a mixed reception, um, according to at least, you know, what I could find on like Wikipedia and places. Mm. Uh, it had a mixed reception overall to the novel with some, uh, stating that it would be, quote, be sure to appease fans with answers about who came up with the idea of the Hunger Games in the first place and calling it, quote, pleasing and thrilling, while others criticize the length, philosophical undertones, and each use of Coriolanus Snow as the protagonist. The Guardian praised the novel, saying that Colin's theme of friendship, betrayal, there you go, <gasps> authority, and oppression, as well as the extra layers of lore of mocking Jays in the capital's history, will please and thrill. Similarly, Time stated that Collins shines most as she, quote, weaves in tantalizing details that lend depth to the gruesome world she created in the original series. Kirkus Reviews gave it a starred review, saying the novel is both a tense, character-driven piece and a cautionary tale. Meanwhile, the Telegraph criticized it as, quote, not having not the most promising opening fans expected and that Collins should mm. stick to plucky heroes and dazzling oh, plot twists. When it comes to writing the murkiest backwaters of the human psyche, Collins is fathoms out of her depth. Sheesh. Mm. Entertainment Weekly, you know, the now monthly weekly magazine, said of the storytelling, the storytelling itself trends desperate at times chapters close in violent cliffhangers that edge into parody and that there are too many folk music interludes and some ludicrous fan franchise callbacks but over it all it is a major work of with major flaws but it sure gives you a lot to chew on ultimately giving it a grade of b minus mm. uh and a movie adaptation is in development but i think we kind of knew that was coming so. <laughs> of course with the digitally um youth Youth, youthized, youth, I don't know, young, youngerized, uh, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland, what do you Oof, think? No, <laughs> uh, that's, that's something I, I really, I'm so, I have such a mixed reaction to that. You know, it's just as much as I enjoyed Captain Marvel, like Sam Jackson in oh, like yeah. digital, digital young, younging him and all that. <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. Yeah. Digital youth of Samuel Jackson. It just, it didn't. I don't know. It's just like I'd rather I'd rather see kind of a cast a younger actor 
Mm. I'm sure there's a young African-American actor out there who could do a good, like, young Sam Jackson, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, this isn't the Captain Marvel podcast. <laughs> you did that with Carolyn and her book. Um, yeah. So, all right, here's the plot synopsis, and I will admit I completely stole this from Wikipedia. I literally wrote this in our show notes. I stole this from Wikipedia <laughs> uh, in in baby boomer size capital letters. I never do so, that. So, well, like a baby boomer on Facebook, I wrote it in all caps. All right, so here we go. Coriol- it's Coriolanus or Coriolanus? Uh, I guess you could do either, really. Right, uh, you said Coriolanus. Uh, yeah, so let's call the whole thing off, right? So uh? you, you said Coriolanus. I'm going to go with that. Um, okay. uh, Coriolanus Snow is chosen to mentor a tribute in the upcoming 10th Hunger Games with hopes of securing a scholarship to the university for mentoring a winning tribute. He is assigned to the District 12 tribute, Lucy Gray Baird, who sparks the Capitol's attention after singing during the reaping. When Coriolanus visits the tributes and realizes they have not been fed since arriving in the capital, he begins sneaking Lucy Gray food from the academy. The others, the other mentors follow suit, but the arrangement ends when one mentor, Arachne Crane, is murdered by her tribute Brady after Arachne taunts her with a sandwich. Clemen, Clemen, Clement, Clemencia, Clemencia? Clemencia, Coriolanus's team member, is distraught by the murder, leaving Coriolanus to complete it alone. He presents the essay to head game maker Volumnia Gall, proposing a betting scheme and sponsorship of the tributes to engage the people of capital in the games. Which is like missing something about the fact that he was assigned to write an essay, but so I really should have, I really should have checked this anyway, (laughs) during a tour of the dilapidated air arena, undetected bombs from the dark days explode, killing several tributes and mentors. The remainder partake in a televised interviews to garner favor and donations. The games begin and many tributes die quickly die from starvation, disease or injuries sustained during the explosions. While Dr. Gall enacts Coriolanus's, proposals within the games. Sejanus or Sejanus um, or Sejanus who is Coriolanus' best friend and essentially like his family is essentially sponsoring him because Coriolanus is not like has a very well known family name in the capital but the family has essentially lost all of its money Mm -hmm. and the only thing that they have to go on is the fact that his I think grandmother still um grows the roses that they're very famous for which is of course is a foreshadow slash callback mm-hmm. to his character in the Hunger Games trilogy. Um, but Sejanus' family um, basically has been paying his tuition uh, to school and really helping him out financially. So, uh, and that's, that's a, that's a running backstory through the entire novel, even before we get to the games, you know, the relationship between, um, th- these two boys and then, uh, Coriolanus and, uh, Sejanus's, like, parents and family. So Sejanus is, is resentful of both the capital and the games, and he enters the arena at night to die as a martyr, and, are, and under the orders of Dr. Gall, Coriolanus extracts him. Um, 
After learning that Rainbow Snake mutations would be released into the arena, Coriolanus slips a handkerchief used by Lucy Gray into the tank of snakes to familiarize them with her scent. As a result, Lucy Gray is not attacked by those mutations, um, using that as a weapon along with rat poison. Lucy Gray is declared the victor of the games. Uh, Gaul had previously used them on like one of the other mentors or whatever by you know using them to attack her or something. And I think it was either Arachne or uh, no, I think it was it was Clemencia, but I can't remember yeah. off the top of my head. It was during the essay situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Lucy Gray is declared the victor of the games, and at the celebration party at the Academy, Coriolanus is confronted with a handkerchief makeup compact and an Academy stamped napkin, basically showing that he cheated in the games and he stole food from the Academy to help his tribute. Facing punishment and public humiliation, he chooses to become a peacekeeper in District 12, assigned on a mission to recover Jabber Jays, which are bird mutations that can record human speech from the wild so that they can be studied in the capital. Coriolanus um, reunites Lucy Gray during a performance at the local black market in District 12. Uh, she's singing with this band, and there's a number of people who are essentially almost like a uh, – not like a rebel squad, but they're definitely um, the type who could – who could be an underground movement uh, among them are a guy named Spruce and then uh, Lucy Gray's former lover who is named Billy Tope. So Sage this as well is now a fellow peacekeeper and he is with Coriolanus at district 12. They, you know, they go to these performances and Sage plots this uh, plot, uh, plots this plan to help some of the district 12 residents escape uh, you know, get out of get out of District 12, go north to uh, beyond the capital's control. And um, his plan is to drug the you know the the prison guards in the area, require several guns, and then go and survive in the wild. Uh, Billy Tope and the mayor's daughter overhear a conversation about this, um, and they're actually killed by Spruce and then Coriolanus because they don't want to hear their their cover blown. The group then returns to the concert that they're playing that night, and uh, Spruce disposes of the weapons. So he's this party to murder of a couple of people while supposedly helping Lucy Gray and and her friends. Um, and their relationship does develop over time in the in the time in in um, District Twelve. In fact, Colin spends a lot of character development time on Lucy Gray and Coriolanus and really the two of them getting to know each other and perhaps an affection for one another. Uh, although that's going to be kind of cut short as we'll see. Uh, these two bodies, by the way, are discovered, um, after the concert by the Covey. This is the name of the group they're kind of part of. Uh, that's a traveling band, et cetera. And when I talked about them possibly being almost kind of like an underground as well, the mayor suspects immediately Lucy Gray. Uh, Spruce dies without revealing the events of those murders. Sajinus is arrested by peacekeepers and hanged. And Lucy Gray and Coriolanus are the only remaining people who witnessed these murders that, um, you know, caused this complication while they're in District 12. Um, but the thing is that Coriolanus sold out Sajinus because Sajinus had been plotting treason, either escape or, or rebellion. And Dr. Gall got a message from Coriolanus to her. And uh, what happens is that Lucy Gray decides to escape anyway. And he says, well, I'm going to leave with her. Or he's going to tell her that he's going to leave with her. And uh, she performs one last song, which is called The Hanging Tree, in which she encodes instructions for him to meet her at the Hanging Tree Gallows for their escape. 
that's at a concert. The next morning, Coriolanus is told that he uh, passed the officer test and he's going to be transferred over to District 2 for elite training school. But at this point, he still is going to leave with Lucy Gray. So <clears throat> the day that he's supposed to go, he goes with her. They go. Um, they start heading north. They enter a partially ruined house to escape from the rain. He finds hidden those hidden guns that were alluded to earlier, while Lucy Gray hastily exits to collect some food. And he realizes that if he destroyed those weapons, there'd be no link between him and those murders allowing him to rejoin capital society as a successful officer. So his ambition is uh, really, really important to his character here. He soon realizes that Lucy Gray must have made some realization and uh, pursues her into the woods with the rifle. Worried that she might kill him out of fear, he discovers her scarf and is attacked by a hiding snake. Angered and believing her to be nearby, he begins shooting randomly into the woods, but he's unable to determine if he successfully shot her. After dumping and incriminating the weapons in, in the lake uh, nearby, he returns to District 12. His absence goes unnoticed by his bunkmates, but he is then treated for the snake bite at the clinic. Coriolanus hover, boards a hovercraft bound for District 2 with Sagenus's personal possessions, in turn, intending to return them to the Plinth family. Uh, upon arrival, Coriolanus is surprised to find himself back in the capital and is brought to meet with Dr. Gall. She explains that this summer was to give him experience in the districts and a better understanding of his residence. Coriolanus is completely convinced of the necessity of the games and the importance of the capital. He's also told that he will be given an honorable discharge from the peacekeepers and is now enrolled in the university instead of District 2's officer school so that he can continue tutelage under Dr. Gall. In the epilogue, Dean Heimbottom, who is the dean of the university, says reveals that he's developed the idea for the Hunger Games, that he developed the idea for the Hunger Games simply as a cruel but theoretical event for a school project, along with Coriolanus' father, Crassus, who would later present the idea to Dr. Gold and that would make the games a reality. This caused animosity between those two people who were formerly friends. Meanwhile, Coriolanus implements many of his ideas into future Hunger Games as a game maker. Lucy Gray is never seen again, and I believe it's either hinted at or explicitly stated that the 10th Hunger Games are essentially expunged from the official records mm -hmm. or covered up, and that there's really that's why they're never really mentioned at all in any of the trilogy. So as choppy as that was, that is the is kind of a brief, uh, rough summary of the Spallet of Songbirds and Snakes. And before we get into our discussion, I always ask the, the first question we always ask each other is, did you like the book? I did. I really did like the book. I and I think I texted this to you in whatever mm. chain it was that it made me stop and ponder many times because um, there are just many philosophical and political discussions, you know, especially with yeah. Gaul and the assignments that she gives. So and it's hard because when you have a great trilogy, it's hard to try to insert something into that, you know, because it's almost like if it's not broke, what, why are you trying to fix it or, you know, add more to that? But I, I feel like and I'm not going to say it's, you know, perfect. I think there are some things that certainly we can discuss because I'm not sure if it's the flaw of the writer or it's intentionally like this. But overall, I uh, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, because sometimes you get a really good, interesting prequel to something, and then sometimes you get midichlorians. Um, Whoa! <laughs> uh, 
anyway, not that I didn't see that movie like three times in the theater, right? But um, yeah, I like this as well. Uh, there were parts of it where I thought were slow, but even the slower parts of it where I was kind of, you know, kind of meandered along, I was still very, very interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did... I did find it to be something that I, I really couldn't put down and for its length because it is in hardcover. Five hundred and seventeen pages. Is that so, longer than Mocking Jay? I think so. I don't yeah. have I don't have a copy of any of the original Hunger Games oh, novels okay. because I checked them all out of the library when I read them. So um so eventually I think I will. My, my son's been interested in the Hunger Games. So I was like, oh, I probably should just go buy like, you know, the slipcase set or whatever of all three. You know how they sell those. Mm-hmm. So, um, but at any rate, uh, I think it is longer. It might be longer than Mockingjay. Mockingjay is the longest of the three. So, but yeah, I, I really, I did enjoy it. And I had the same thoughts because at first I was kind of like, oh, this is going to be some villain origin story. And like, we just went through this whole like, Joaquin Phoenix is the Joker thing. And it was just mm. like, do we really need these stories? You know, we've, we've seen the Darth Vader origin as well to bring up a prequel. But even that I can excuse as the story, uh, you know, as a story that um, if it wasn't begging to be told that we would eventually get in some way, because it's not like it wasn't hinted at in Star Wars, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and Empire and Jedi. So the idea that Lucas would go back and do that story made a sort of logical sense. Here, Collins never really suggested any about anything really about Snow. From what I can remember in his characterization of the Hunger Games, he wasn't a mustache-twirling villain in the trilogy, but he wasn't like... It, you didn't get much of his backstory or personality aside from the fact that he was a dictator and he was manipulative and very, very shrewd. Mm-hmm. Which we see in this, we see that in this book. So that's what I, I kind of yeah. liked about it. And um, the poisoning too, because that was like yeah. a dimension that you're like, oh, what's with this rose thing? And then why did he poison this whole party? And yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Well, the poison, the poisoning comes through Doctor Gall, who, um, and all these names that are references to like ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. You know, Gall being the the ancient name for uh, for France and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe Dr. Gall is the one who started developing the, the mutations. She's kind of the kind of the mad scientist of, of Panem. Um, I don't, you know, I don't make a direct Dr. Mengele impar- comparison, but she's, you know, essentially that, that type. And um, the, the snakes are interesting because the snakes are like, yeah, they, Lucy learns to kind of kind of control them in a way mm-hmm. by uh, because of the fact that that he he dipped a handkerchief with like her particular scent or whatever on or a particular scent on his in the snake the snake kind of receptacle or cage or whatever and was able to stick his hand in and out um, and then of course his his friend was not so lucky and she was like really really hurt mm-hmm. to the point where you know they. Um, as tributes and uh, not tributes as mentors, you know, there are all these students who are chosen as mentors and they all have to sit up in like the press box, so to speak. And there's a real tension between the two of them after she comes back from being treated in the hospital for days upon days and you know, near death from all these snake bites, uh, which is a pretty horrific scene. And I thought she's going to turn into a snake. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like we were pretty close to that, but uh, it never ended up happening. 
Yeah. Although that is a good thought considering the way that in the end of the Hunger Games novel, the mutations aren't necessarily the people, the dead right. people, but they are made to look like the dead people. So it yeah. looks like um, the the one girl she is friends with, whose name I am completely drawing a blank on, the little girl, is... Ooh. Yeah, Rue is attacking her at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that in the movie, I think they just made them look like wild dogs or something because they couldn't get the digital effects to look Not right. But I, uh, yeah, but I saw the concept drawings and they were like sufficiently creepy, mm, you know, yeah. and, and had they been able to pull that effect off, it would have been pretty disturbing looking. I mean, yeah. so I think that what you just mentioned kind of foreshadows that in a sense. You know? Also, I would say like the cosmetic changes that the rich people go through as well, because they kind of mm-hmm. have different, I don't know, implants or that kind of yeah. thing. I'm thinking like Batman Beyond when they do splicers. Remember yeah, splicers yeah. from Batman Beyond? Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, and there's, and I think the thing that always struck me about the Capitol is that there's like a, especially in the in the trilogy, is that there's like a like a Hollywood aspect to them or, a, or a, not even a Hollywood, like a real housewives of, of orange County or real housewives of Beverly Hills. That's sort of face lifted until the point where you're barely recognizable as who you used to look like, mm-hmm. or like, you know, the, 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 the plastic surgery looks terrible type of yeah. look. Then you, and you know, the look I'm talking about. Um, and, and that's, that's what I, I wonder if she was, I think she's pulling from and, and we see sort of the, the beginnings of it here, even in the dark times, so to speak. Um, let's get the first, like, kind of the, the question I want to get out of the way first is the second one that's actually on our list, because um, I think this it's just kind of the elephant in the room. And so let's just kind of get it out of the way, especially since we were talking about our uh, our opinions of the book. Sure. The uh, you had written this down. You said you saw a video review with which title was something like we didn't need this book. <laughs> And as you know, uh, if it was a video on YouTube that's a review, you know, they're always fair. Yeah. They they, they always check their facts. Absolutely. Uh, You know, they're never misogynistic, racist or anything like that. They're always they're always open minded, you know, you know, they don't represent the worst humanity. But anyway, do you agree? Does this add significantly to the Hunger Games mythos or was it completely unnecessary? In my personal opinion, <laughs> I I feel like it does add to it. I am still really interested to see how Pan Am broke up in the war and everything. But to better understand this man behind the curtain of the trilogy and to potentially understand his motivations or at least to get to know him, because I'm feeling like this is not going to be the only book in the Coriolanus Snow uh, story. I feel like we're going to see more. And also just, just seeing other aspects of the districts and then how the games developed, which I found most fascinating, just that it was not, you know, like it was with the, I guess we saw the 74th and the 75th. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked getting that backstory. Um, and yeah, so for me, let's see, did we need it? You know, <laughs> I guess not real, you know, the, the Hunger Games, I guess, hate it or love it, you know, if you love it, I, I think you're fine with what it is. Um, 
I don't think it was unnecessary, but did we need it? Maybe not. I, I don't know. I feel like maybe that's a thing, you know. We could have been okay with the Hunger Games, yeah. but I don't think it's just like, oh, a bunch of fluff that doesn't add to – I think it adds a lot of dimension to a lot of aspects of the the original trilogy. Yeah, I, I, the phrase we didn't need this book smacks of fan entitlement, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, yeah. like, okay, okay, like then don't read it. It's okay. You don't have to read it. <laughs> Um, because it does, it smacks of that fan entitlement that I'm so sick of, but I'm with you. I think it adds quite a bit and I, I, we get to explore the, my favorite parts is as much as I enjoyed the character development here, my favorite parts really were the, the exploration of the world itself. Mm -hmm. It's like we need, what's the Tolkien book. That's kind of the, a little bit of this history of middle earth, like the Cimmerillion or something. Um, I, I, you know, Tolkien fans will probably like email or comment to be like, yeah, you're right or no, you're wrong. And then I apologize. I've read The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And at the end of The Return of the King, there's quite a, a bit of like a, an appendix I remember reading in my copy anyway. And I don't know where my copy is um, of the history of it. And I was like, I found that fascinating because I like that, you know, you're talking to somebody who, who loved like who's who, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and the game atlas of whatever, and the, just kind of all that, all that like weird reference stuff for fictional universes, the history of the DC universe, that sort of stuff. So I'm like totally into that, and that's I really loved exploring the different parts of this world some more. Sometimes even more than the character development between like Coriolanus and Sejanus and Lucy and all that. Um, one of the other questions you had here were, are the connections with the trilogy and especially District 13 trite or worthwhile? I have a further question about that uh, that I'll ask to in a moment, uh, specific to one character in the, in the book and the trilogy. But um, I don't know. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. I agree with you. I really liked how we saw the games themselves in the 10th game and how brutal they were mm -hmm. and how they were so much this punishment and remembering what we remember about the games. We remember this reality show, this pageantry, this like kind of death Olympics type of thing and sponsors and people cheering for the different districts and the celebrity making and like so much of it isn't there when this starts and uh and and I'm like, oh, and he was behind developing all of that. And it makes sense that he's in power by the time especially we see this, we see this sort of nascent manipulation that's going on from the part of him and he's like really good at it and I can totally tell that with um sixty five years of experience behind him, why he's so masterful at it when he is uh when we see him in um, Catching Fire and then Mockingjay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking about way long ago when I talked back row year one with Josh Bertoni. Um, you know, he would make fun of those moments of like, we could be the birds of prey when back row and diner <laughs> are there. But I like those sorts of nods. Of, <laughs> yeah, hey, look, you know, it's, like, it's a Death Star, you know. Yeah. yeah I like yeah. those nods, um, whether they're in your face or not. And so a lot of these things, like The Hanging Tree, which is a song that appears in there, or getting to know some of these characters in or places in District 13, like The Shack, 
because the hunting shack pops up in the Hunger Games and things like that. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. And and you have so many questions when you're reading post-apocalyptic or dystopian novels of how did such and such get that way, that some of those questions were answered. So I think that, that those were great. And even... Um, I can't think of any particular <laughs> – there were so many uh, of moments of like, oh, wow, so that's how, you know, da-da-da, that, that got there. And we have – there are still many dangling questions like Tigress, who is so close with Coriolanus right now, is the shopkeeper that ends up helping um, the the rebels out and, and mocking Jane. So you're yeah. like, well, how did she, why did she go? So how does that relationship become fraught all of a sudden? So I feel like they're not trite. I think she picked, I think Collins picked particular ones that she wanted to have connections to and made those connections, connections deep and worthwhile. Yeah. And, and we, you know, you and I have read, you mentioned back earlier one, and we've read comics where we've seen, um, sometimes complete retcons of things, but other times we've seen people fill in the blanks. And yeah. uh, all the new comic fans are are, are familiar with this in, in myriad ways, whether you're a fan of Roy Thomas or you've read a lot of Jeff Johns or what have you. Um, and I agree. I think she seemed to be picking and choosing the right things. Um, one of them is the character of Maud, who is the younger friend of Lucy Gray. Mm. Who it's who is basically Katniss's? I think she's Katniss's grandmother. Mm. Um, uh, from like putting all all of the things together with the hanging tree and and some of the songs they sing and some of the other things that are mentioned. Um, that's the uh, and and the mention of the word like the name dropping of Katniss at one point the, yep. the flowers and stuff which I thought was a little bit cheesy. I was okay. Like, oh, so I see what here. you did there. I was like, yeah. I I get it because it's a hint because it's just a reminder of like, oh yeah, they are family to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was but at the same time when I heard when I saw the name Katniss come up in reference to the flower. I, my first thought was like, oh, I see what you did there, you know, so yeah. not it didn't turn me off. It didn't take me out of the book. I was like, all right, all right, I get it. Um, it was, you know, it was the Death Star at the end of the Attack of the Clones. Like how many seconds you're going to let the camera linger on the Death Star plans, George. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but does this set up like does Snow then when we get to the trilogy, does he know who Katniss is in relation oh, to these so. girls? from sorry these young women that he knew 65 years ago or 60 years prior and uh, does that mean like he has a personal vendetta you know like he was scorned or something or um or is it just kind of a or does he maybe not realize it or it's just a you know he's he's just kind of a bastard anyway so it wouldn't have mattered uh, and if it is kind of a vendetta, if he is holding a grudge, or if it is bringing up opening an old wound, does that cheapen him in the original trilogy? Hmm. So I wouldn't put it past him once he grows in power, kind of checking in on the Coveys, whether he mm-hmm. wants to destroy them or not. And, and so he might know of that connection. I feel like a lot of it is this like his hatred is is all surrounding that whole situation so like district 12 i think there's already prejudice going in there i think how katniss is able to sort of steal the show without being as 
ostentatious as um, Lucy Gray by any means, but the fact that she does, of course, uh, come out and, and, you know, sacrifice herself yeah, for volunteer. Prim. Yeah. yeah, so she's out there. Um, and what else was there that I was thinking? Da, da, da. The singing, you know, all this, mm-hmm. um, her connection with the, the mocking Jay, and we see how much he hates them, which is a very, I think I forgot to write that question in there of like, why does he hate them so much besides, you know, his obvious dating? So I think it's all this like wrapped up, um, with, with like his whole history with District 12 is, is one of the reasons why I think he's, he's going out for it, but I wouldn't put it past him. Like I said, keeping track of them. Does it cheapen him as a villain? Um, I don't think so. I think it almost adds like more depth to him of, you know, why, you know, it's, it's not all around badness. So I think there is like all around badness for him, but there's like some connection that you can't put your, your finger on until you realize what his history is with this particular district that I think it adds a new dimension to him, uh, in my personal opinion. Um, and then there was something else I was going to say, but now I've, I've lost it. So I, I, yeah, I don't think it, it cheapens him as a villain in the original trilogy. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it does add some depth. It might not be a personal vendetta against her, but it might be the the memories of that place, even though they're long buried and it's something he's tried to bury in his past. When it pops up like that, um, he has kind of a visceral reaction to it. So it's just a, it's a prejudice that he's developed against District 12 over time anyway. You know, mm-hmm. and it's the one it's the one area that, you know, that the most that he'll that he'll keep poor and that he'll keep down. So, yeah, I think it makes you questions question his motives sometimes. Like as I was reading this, I was thinking to the original trilogy and like, oh, wow, I wonder if this is why he, you know, didn't trust Katniss and Peter's relationship. You know, if mm-hmm. there was something between him and Lucy Gray or why does he always go after Katniss? So. I feel like it, it, this, reading this almost made me rethink in context some of the things that happened in the Hunger Games, which I enjoyed. Like, I, I enjoyed thinking about the original in a different way. Like, oh, I wonder if this is why, which we'll never know really because we're not in Collins's head, but that's why I liked this so much is because it did make me consider new aspects of a tale that I've, you know, read a couple times and really enjoy. Yeah, I agree with you, especially since it actually what it does for him is it makes him more fallible in the original trilogy, because when even if it's a little bit personal, Mm -hmm. it it gives him more of a flaw than like the master craftsman manipulative (laughs) villain that he was. Yeah. So, and you know, um, then, and, uh, and he's still very cold, but at the same time, the sort of over emphasis or, um, over fixation on Katniss does bring about his downfall in a big Mm. way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, then that's way more of a, of a somehow personal, or emotional vendetta than cold manipulation and calculation in terms of uh, of keeping and maintaining power. Yeah, like Gaul, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
so he is the so he is the antagonist of the original trilogy. Did you like him in this, or did you still, or were you just kind of like just waiting for the other shoe to drop, and you're like, I know he's going to become a villain, so, Ooh, yeah. um, so I'm just waiting for it to happen, or did you like him and then kind of feel at least a little betrayed, even though you know what's going to happen? I did. I liked him, but I was also on. I was not trusting him, which I guess is the. You know, I wonder what it would be like to be someone who hadn't watched or read or knew anything about the Hunger Games to step in this and see what this was like. But there are clearly shades of him coming out throughout because it seems like he and Sejanus or Sejanus are similar in their ideologies. So Sejanus will go farther for it. And I think like he's probably the best character we have in this particular book. Mm -hmm. But in... You know, Coriolanus is definitely two faced and we know that he is, you know, he's a power monger. I think you said that his um, his ambition is like definitely yeah, his his heroic flaw or his non heroic flaw. And so we'll see some of these things um, and how he acts with people to their face or what he thinks about them because you said best friend and i i almost wanted to chuckle and interrupt you and say like you know in quotations because he was constantly called to janice's best friend but mm-hmm. he never wanted to really be associated with him and that family uh but it seems like you know lucy gray like his relationship with her which we'll we'll talk about um you could kind of say like it's sweet but with all the writing, it's he's so possessive of her. Mm-hmm. So on the surface, it's like, oh, he might be a decent guy. But as you actually are reading what is being written about him, you can kind of already see stuff bubbling out to the surface. Um, I feel like the change at the end, like this is one of my disagreements with it, that whole shack. I guess that's the climax potentially of the novel. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's like, it's really quick. This huge change. He becomes very paranoid. You know, did she really know what was happening and all that? Like, I'm kind of confused with all that. I felt like that was really quick, but I would say like, you can tell all this stuff is bubbling up at the surface. And yes, he's our hero of the story or at least our protagonist. Um, so in some ways I did like him, but I also was, um, he was not the most trustworthy of guys and just reading some of his thoughts and stuff. And especially how he was talking about her, his, um, Lucy gray. You're like, okay. So I, I would say I, I kind of toe the, the line on your question of, yeah, I was definitely waiting for the other shooter drop, but I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. Cause he was doing some decent things, you know, agreeing that both he and Clemencia wrote the paper, but that led to her detriment, you know? So he, yeah, he was a complex character for sure. And it's hard for an author to go in. Like, how do you do that? I, I don't know if her intention was like, can I make him as likable as possible? Even though people, that's a tough bill to yeah. to try to pay for sure for Collins. Yeah, because it's not a fall from grace in the way that you have as an Anakin Skywalker, where like he was corrupted and turned, as opposed to he always had this in him, like he was always trying to gain in some way and he was protective of his image 
and very, very conscious of what he was doing. Like he's like, I think you're right. He's likable enough, mm-hmm. you know, that you're the, and, and you don't like by the end, you're like, oh yeah, this guy is like, he, he's kind of fully come in, started to come into his own. See, he didn't turn over to the dark side. He was already there. It was just, it was developing and he's more developed at the end. Um, so that is kind of why I think you're right. That scene in the shack toward the end where he gets paranoid, she was trying to, maybe she was trying to force the climax in a way to make it seem exciting when it might not necessarily mm. be because it's done on such a small scale. Yeah. And he doesn't need to do a heel turn in that sense because he's already the heel and he, mm-hmm. and we, we know, we see it coming. Um, you know, we, we're not, and he, and again, he's not being manipulated by anybody to become this. Mm-hmm. He becomes this on his own. So, so yeah, it is a little bit quick. And I think it, it was not as subtle as it could have been. Yeah. But even then, like, I found this, I did find myself rooting for him in places, especially mm-hmm. when he did demonstrate his humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but at other places, I was just like, yeah, you're like the, the, the toxic masculinity <laughs> in this character, especially you're, like you said, that possessive way. Mm-hmm. He's got obviously got some sort of crush on her and he's possessive about it. Mm-hmm. That is textbook. Textbook. Um, and. Uh, thankfully, she doesn't write any, from what I remember, he, she doesn't write any sexual violence against the no. women characters because that is one of the, you know, she betrayed me. I got betrayed and, you know, like I'm going to hate, all, I'm going to become a misogynist and like, yeah. you know, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was violent toward, toward women. Um, there were just hints of. And I was trying to figure out why she was doing this, but hints of potentially either Tigress or somebody else like selling themselves for mm. food and things like so there's like desperation, but she never spelled it out. It's just like mm. hinted as like, is that what we're talking about here? So that would be like the closest thing. Yeah, and I wonder if she was doing that because she was hinting and not explicitly saying it because it is a young adult novel. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's already dire enough, you know, to, you yeah. know maybe she was thinking of her audience and self-censoring a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sagenus as a character who's, he, oh. I see him also as, as a friend, but a foil as well. Mm. You know, the, the idea that the two of them are very, a lot different from one another in terms of their beliefs and their ambitions. I mean, he is really this, he, he is one of the more pure characters in mm-hmm. terms of belief you know so his he really is probably the most pure hearted mm-hmm. and he he's plotting this re- not even a rebellion just an escape let's go live off the grid is basically what they're plotting yeah. at the end of the yeah that's really what they're plotting oh at the end yeah of the book and i could totally see him joining the covey or the covey which is oh, you yeah. know, the group and them traveling around like that theater troupe in uh, in Station oh, Eleven, yeah. you know, like that's what I was picturing. That's what he wants to do. So it's not a necessarily an all-out rebellion or let's attack the capital. It's more of like I don't want I want out of this society, and I have found my way. And you had a feeling from the very beginning when we meet him that he's always kind of been like that. Like, um, whereas his friend, in quotes. Coriolanus has the <laughs> has the ambition and he will and now the the one heel turn that happens here that I didn't think was rushed and I thought was actually 
coming the whole time. And he and when he went through with it, you were like, oh, you were kind of like, mm-hmm. was the the fact that he that he betrayed his friend, that he <sighs> turned his friend in, and and you knew it was coming. But even then, I was even just slightly disappointed. Yeah. In our protagonist, what about you? Were you? Uh... Yeah, I thought maybe he would have like he would, I don't know, be better towards him. Like there would be some sort of moment, and they had that embrace right when Coriolanus was about to kill himself and then in pops Giannis I guess yeah. it's a deus ex machima who knows and uh, he embraces him he's like oh, I'm so glad to, to see you and so I thought maybe there was a turnaround but man Coriolanus I guess it, it was building because he was just getting so antsy you know watching this guy and like what are you doing and that sort of thing so it just felt like I don't Kind of, I, I don't know if I can put into words, but Coriolanus, however much he can sort of tend towards humanity, it seems like he's always going to be for the upper class and the capital first, no matter mm-hmm. what. And so I think that was like the moment of like, yeah, I'm capital only. Whereas Sejanus, even though he is capital, he never related to that. And he always said that District 2 was his mm-hmm. home and he was yeah. always for the people and so I, I think there just had to be this dividing line and there had to you know they had to come to blows but you're right i mean <laughs> he was he was the the best character and and just how much he tried g- gosh going into the arena in order to cut that guy down or to help him i can't remember if he was dead by that point in time um, so yeah, I guess just their ideal, I mean, yeah, I guess it's just symbolic, right? For their ideologies that they had to come to blows. And so there's just no way for you to be in the capital, um, unless you're also of the capital. So I, I think that was kind of what it came down to. And so that poor guy, he couldn't survive. Yeah. Um, and then one of the things about Coriolanus, and we're just getting back into, um, you know, the fact that Sages, you know, they lived in the capital, but they were originally from District 2, and he really thought of it as home. Um, but Coriolanus is, like I said, his family name is, like, yep. really important to him, even though they don't have much. But he's, like, putting on airs the entire time. And <laughs> it's almost like he's... on top! Yes, yeah, Snowland's on top. And it's <laughs> this whole... This whole thing that's kind of pathetic in places, too. But he sees it as this like mission and it becomes more and more clear as he goes through the book. Um, especially after he's been disgraced that he's got to get his family name back to where it needs to be. And he has to bring back, like restore honor and restore the, the power that his family once had that was lost because of, you know, various circumstances, the war, etc. His grandmother's the kind of pathetic one who's living, still living in the idea that, you know, there's still these rich people mm-hmm. when they're kind of, you know, they're kind of a joke. They're so in debt or they have very little money, but he is trying to rebuild it. And that's why we have these various missteps throughout the entire book, because, you know, he, he does challenge authority from time to time. Um, you know, and he has a, he does not have the best relationship with the Dean, Dean Highbottom. And we find out why at the end, because, mm-hmm. you know, he's holding a grudge toward, uh, Coriolanus' yeah. father. And then they, you know, when they get shipped off to 12 and all that happens, they come back and then everything's restored because Gaul was testing him. Cause she's really the, the brains behind yeah. everything. And 
one of his acts in this whole thing is to erase the smear on his record from the 10th Hunger Games, which, again, it's the appearances, the errors, and, and you know, snow landing, snow landing on top or mm-hmm. whatever it is, which is the last sentence of the book. Yeah, it's, it's really important to him. And on some level, I don't know if it's important to the, I don't know how important the Snow family name is to the original trilogy, but that idea of family is so important to the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. So I think we're exploring that theme from the original trilogy in kind of a warped way. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I I think the the pressure of the family name, um, the pressure that can also come from uh, your parents and trying to push something on you that maybe you don't want with Sejanus's family. Mm-hmm. Um, what lengths you'll go to, to, yeah, to please someone else or to uphold that family name for, yeah, for sure. And then it's completely different, I think, um, uh, because you'd think that it would be honorable, like to see what Coriolan, cause he's very concerned with these letters when he's in district 12 and he sees how Tigress and his grandmother are faring and not too well, but is he concerned about them or the name and, and the reputation and, and the image of that? Whereas yeah. I think with Katniss and her, you know, her concern for her mother and Prim are just like because of her love for them. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the name has nothing to do with it. It's just like, that's all she has. And, and their family had already been shook, shooken, shaken. <laughs> by the death of their father and so you know everyone's teeter so yeah it's really interesting to see the tie to family because I, I think there's something pure about it with hunger games but there's something perverted about it here and i don't know if it's because of the capital like the closer you get to the capital just people's idealisms or you know just their beliefs are kind of twisted whereas uh, away from it because you have to rely on yourself and and you have to take care of each other, um, that that's different. And, and I think the root though, if you look at the Coveys, which I feel like they're kind of, um, uh, a modern take because we know that this is closely tied to Roman history and culture and things like that to gypsies and, and kind of wandering crews okay. like that. Uh, that's kind of how I saw it. Cause the way she was talking about how we don't have a district, we were wandering about. I'm like, how did you get in district 12 and why can't you leave? But I, I feel like that's almost the, the start of, of seeing this pure love of family. Cause that's such a ragtag group and they, they just love each other and they're doing everything for each other. So that sort of points, I think that's the purest, familial relationship that we have in this particular book yeah i think you're right and uh and i like the fact that you you did mention that the guy just the the authenticity of katniss's relationship and her view of her Mm -hmm. of her family because of the fact that just it is authentically out of love and there's a purity to it whereas yeah this is it is perverse but again it's kind of a it is kind of a criticism of of the corruption that comes with um, wealth, mm. you know, or, or not even wealth, just riches or money and like, you know, kind of some of those themes that, that we see and, and how power can corrupt as well. But it was always there to begin with. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about, uh, about with uh, this sort of relationship between him and Lucy Gray. 
and we talked about how he was very possessive of her and um you know <laughs> the did did he have genuine feelings for her was it always manipulative um and is the ending at the cabin in the woods clear mm. or is this like what he thinks has happened you know like yeah. can we trust his perspective on this relationship that he has with Lucy Gray to be honest, the entire time I thought she was acting like I, I did not ship these characters at all. Part of it is because it is his perspective and the possession language. Um, it did really seem toxic. And but then, you know, all of this stuff, like it seems like maybe she did have genuine feelings. But I thought, oh, this is a good connection to the Hunger Games. That's why she didn't trust Cadmus's feelings for Peta because he's been through this. But maybe she did have genuine feelings. Um, but I, I don't know what it is. I feel like he's there's something wrapped up. It's it's real real complicated because he thinks she's a psychotic person at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if it's just something that's like so foreign and exotic from what he knows from his day to day that it's something that he really likes. Um, but yeah, like I said at the end, well, she is going to run away with him. But just something I I just don't fully understand what actually happens. And the slip, of course, is that he says he killed three people and she didn't know who the third was. And, of course, it was Sejanus mm -hmm. um, since he betrayed. And so the thought is that she figured out what it was and then goes out. And it, it makes sense with the snake because we knew that she had a connection with the snakes and that there was forewarning before that there were snakes around. And, um, she yeah. left the handkerchief, I think, or something there as mm -hmm. bait. Uh, but it's just so quick that I'm like, so she realized that and she realized that she was also going to get killed in the same breath of, or the same minute of thinking as that. So that's where I kind of get wrapped up. Whereas I wonder, Oh, was she actually luring him out there? But I don't know what the motivations would be. So that the ending confuses me. I, mm -hmm. I guess, yes, they have genuine feelings though throughout. I just thought, Oh man, I, I think she might be making it up, but it's, I don't know if she could act as well as that. Um, but it's all in his perspective, so it's really hard. So, and maybe that's the point that, you know, we see that he's got this weird fascination with her, but we have no idea, um, what she's, what she's doing. Cause I thought maybe she would run back off with, with Billy, but he was still with Mayflower, so. Yeah. And I, 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 I wonder if part of it is he can't fathom a relationship where somebody wants something from the other person or doesn't want something <laughs> from the other person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, he's always looking for the angle, um, which is kind of his thing. Like he's always looking for, you know, he, he's, he's always looking for some way. Somebody's manipulating somebody else. Somebody's trying to extract something from somebody else. So maybe she was not luring him to his death. Maybe she was just using him so she could get out of there. Yeah. And I don't know, like whether or not he lived to tell the tale might have been actually irrelevant to her. And he sees it as she's setting him up. But maybe mm -hmm. she was just trying to use him up until that point, And then she was always going to just abandon him because she just he just she just didn't need him anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, maybe it's that it's still a little bit manipulative, but it's not as um, vindictive. Yeah. As he seems to think it is. But I think you're right. You're seeing it from his perspective. And it's just kind of like, 
you know, um, it, it's, it is very toxic. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah in, in a big way. Although ironically he brings he, he makes the games more humane in a sense, because one of the things he does and he gets known for is like bringing food to the tributes because the mm-hmm. tributes, they, they starve them in cages and they treat them like animals and a bunch of them die from this explosion by an errant bomb. And then like, uh, the, the one who's from, um, district 12 along with Lucy gray gets like rabies in the middle of yeah. the entire games. And, you know, and there's just, it's, it's not even in, um, it's not even in like the arena in the sense of what we saw in the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. It's in a literal arena, like the Colosseum in Rome, basically. You know, yeah. like this ruined arena. And I was, I think, because the capital is supposed to be uh, in the Rockies. I'm picturing like Mile High Stadium in Denver, and that's basically where they have it. And they're fighting each other in essentially this kind of like derelict, decrepit arena yeah. and um normally no hiding spots but the bombing yeah. allowed some hiding spots to be made available yeah which would make it sense that it's like a football stadium or an old football stadium or something but then he's like no like first of all we need ratings we need we need popularity we need the people to want to watch this that not they're not they're being forced to watch this etc and then finally he starts developing the ideas that we see come that have come to fruition by the time we get to the first novel of the trilogy and that it is a reality television spectacle. So they're not really that humane, the changes he makes. They're more to keep power and control. Had, had Gaul rejected all of his ideas, what do you think would have happened? <laughs> and let me, for my conspiracy theory is that Gaul was the one who set up the bombing or the. I, I just, I don't know. I just have a feeling that she's the one who did it. But we'll never know, potentially. Not a bad idea. Um, You know, yeah, because we could say that they're quote-unquote humane because he, the the betting and everything, um, or at least the, the sponsors to send food in is to, to help other people. And they're actually treated like rats in a cage because they're like thrown in a zoo. It's terrible. Um, so trying to get food out and everything like that. So it seems great. But what he does really is, is increase the longevity of the games because what it seems like is that you, people are putting up with them. They're enduring them. Even the spectators are kind of grossed out and, and even the mentors really can't, some of them are bloodthirsty, but other, most of them are, you know, looking away and, and can't really handle this. And these are kids and not really empathizing, but at least kind of like sympathizing that, Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> we're also the same age kind of thing. And then when the betting and all this now, like these people have skin in the games and now they're excited about it. And now it's an actual event. And so there's a, I feel like without his influence and if Gaul had, had said no to it, that they would have petered out, you know, after a couple of years, mm-hmm. cause okay, we now know, you know, that this is what happens and maybe they, she would come up with another way to, to punish or keep that reminder going. But now it's like this huge event and, and I assume that money, this is how, you know, the capital starts to flourish because it's still, it's not poverty stricken, but it's not the best as we see now. So I, I feel like, yeah, longevity pushing it uh, into the 75th Hunger Games. You know, as we see in uh, Catching Fire. 
Yeah, there's a there's a sort of post-war. I don't know. I I don't. And this is, might be a false assessment here of almost like a like some the people who were rich in like Victorian England and they had that legacy and it's post the world the wars and they're still trying to hang on to what they had for the past like 30 40 decades in the in the capital there but the like it's it's all just sheen you know it's, it's mm. none of it's actually real you know and these people are still trying to hold on to like what they might have had prior to that but it's really really dire situation but then you're right i think that what he does is not just bread and circuses you know, yeah. as we know Penem to be, yeah. but it's also a revenue generator because all the money flows to the capital from the from the games, and it becomes like the not the maybe the maybe the backbone of the economy in a big mm. way, you know, like or at least a huge contributor to the economy. Yeah. So again, it's it's a it's a really ingenious plot on his part, and it and it appears to make it more humane because it's really brutal. Um, and, and you're right, it just it, the investment that comes with it. It's this sort of it's Machiavellian in yeah. its way, and the districts. I guess for the most part, they just want to live. But then mm-hmm. once you add in the, I guess, lifetime of food or a year of food or the good, you know, now yeah. there's more incentive. And then you're starting to create the, the careers and things like that. So it's all, yeah, it's really interesting. But I was shocked with how they were treated initially. So I kudos to Collins for like really throwing me off because I, I didn't expect how they were treated whatsoever yeah. very poorly just thrown in the cage yeah yeah so um the la- last question i want to get at is actually the first one on our list which oh. is uh does this novel seem more political compared to the original trilogy mm. if so is it because of the main character could it be the context in which it was written um and you had said that you also noticed more explicit queer characters yeah. whereas in the original i don't remember any um so let's let's uh let's get to the first part of that does this novel seem more political compared to the original trilogy i feel like yes mm-hmm. and whether it's um i think a lot of it is surrounding gall and you know these topics of uh you know what constitutes like a real person or a person that we should <laughs> say is an actual person because there's lots lots of weird stuff i was just thinking about when they're thrown in the zoo and the rabies mm-hmm. thing and the cameraman was like do can i get rabies like not understanding or not really recognizing that these people from the district are also people and not animals um, yeah, she, she's almost a eugenicist yes, in that sense. Very odd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just a lot of the topics, the essay questions and things like that, and just that whole class. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I would say absolutely. I feel like it, it's political. I think part of it is because of Coriolanus, but I just feel like. Our current predicament in the U.S. Uh, has inserted itself or just like see, you know, how, how do we treat other human beings, be raised the same way, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do think she broadened her her characters because there were there were two queer characters in this particular novel. And I just don't remember any 
um, unless I just read over them in the original trilogy. But I recently reread that, so I don't remember. But maybe she's like opening things up. But I feel like the context and you know, almost having a, a tyrannical rule currently, um, that maybe, you know, some, some things she's like posing some questions for readers in this current time period to also consider outside of the context of the novel. Yeah. Um, and I picked up a very Thomas Hobbes oh, vibe here. Yeah. The, the, the state of nature being utter chaos mm. and conflict and mm-hmm, Leviathan mm-hmm. <laughs> and that being a work that short explanation is the justification for the divine right, the absolute monarch, you know, that coming from that is this power coming from that as somebody is that you need that leader who basically wins out over that chaos and powers derived mm-hmm. from there, from the state of nature and that mm-hmm. it's in a one being. Um, and it's a much longer book than I'm giving, you know, that I'm, <laughs> and I'm probably not giving it enough credit, but I saw that I saw that Hobbesian struggle as opposed to say Locke and the, the tabula rasa and the, um, and what Jefferson, um, see, I don't see Jefferson as a plagiarist there. I see Jefferson as somebody who was taking from enlightenment philosophy. So he was more of a follower mm-hmm. of Locke. But then again, I may be wrong and I usually am and somebody usually corrects me. So, but anyway, um, but like, you know, kind of Jefferson took from that mm-hmm. with the government of the people, you know, with actually that was the Gettysburg Address, the whole, the whole idea of, you know, he took from that the life, liberty and, and pursuit of happiness. Madison took when, when he was writing, helping to write the com- constitution, the whole we the people concept. And then Lincoln, of course, reinforces it of the government of the people, by the people and for the people, which is not what we have here. What we have here is, is the rise to power. So if, through Machiavelli manipulation, we get the, the, Hobbesian, the Hobbesian ruler, in, in a sense, and like I said, I'm a little rusty on this stuff. It's been a good twenty to twenty. Yeah, did we talk about this read. last episode? I think we too? talked about it in the reader. Yeah, yeah, but like you know, the Hobbesian thing um, yeah. just remind me of. Um, yeah, but it's been about 24, 25 years since I read Leviathan. So, um, but I, it just made me think of that because this is a chaotic state of nature post, yeah. and it is post-apocalyptic. But at the same time, you know, there's two ways to look at that. It's like, you know, how are we being manipulated and how are we being brutalized? You know, what is control, um, et cetera. But also, do we allow ourselves to be manipulated? Like, do we, 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 we need to be aware of like, in the chaos that we're in, we're in a very fragile time. And when you're in a fragile time and you see the tyranny around you, it can tip over into something much worse, which is what happens at the end of this. Well, not at the end of this book, but what happens in the between time between the end of this book and the beginning of the hunger games. Mm. So, yeah, I wonder if she got criticized. I was trying to look up to see what sort of criticism she got for Hunger Games and couldn't really find anything, but maybe for not having a diverse cast also, and maybe that's why she had well, Yeah, I mean, well, we'll get, let's get into the diversity. We'll get into the queer characters. The thing, the thing I don't – the thing about that that I uh, – there, there I have two. I have an in-universe explanation, and I have a real-world Theory. Okay. The real world theory is that the Hunger Games was originally written what two thousand four. Yeah, I think it's been two thousand three, two thousand four. Right. That's the same year where, um, you know, 
as much as we've made, as much as it was progress that had been made since the 90s and the 80s, it was still, um, it, outwardly expressing your queerness was still something that was, uh, that was not as widely accepted in society mm -hmm. as it is. You know, this is 2000, the 2004 election was Bush. And a lot of talk was about morals and values. You know, DOMA was still on the books. Um, the big debate in over the course of the next couple of years in state legislatures were states writing constitutional amendments into their constitutions to ban same-sex marriage. So she might have been playing it safe mm. by not having queer characters. Gotcha in the thing and it was or it was just something that did not occur to her i don't think she's like jk rowling <gasps> transphobic or anything in fact my in-universe explanation is that within the 60 years at least within the capital i think that there's sort of a like fluidity that not everybody's queer but it's oh, so part of the society yeah that like there's because of and part of it is because of the bacchanalia that is the capital. Yeah. And part of it is all the, the surgeries and the alterations and stuff that that's where people find their freedom in their sexuality and there seems that there's probably a fair amount of gender fluidity in the capital during the during the heyday mm -hmm. of, of the Hunger Games. So um that's why there's there's no outward declaration yeah. of it perhaps you know like like it would be so acceptable that you wouldn't even notice the queerness yeah it's just the entire place is just you know it, <laughs> it is it's is just that as it's fluid in that sense like Shira that was my Netflix. yeah that was that was my no prize for it you know like why you don't really no, see it but my immoral thing is she's yeah. probably just didn't want to take it that far because of maybe hesitation or the publisher or something you know it's it was a i had to be like oh it was a different time but it really really was as somebody who yeah, remembers the true. early 2000s as who was still in a it was an adult back then as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just out of diapers. Um, <laughs> Didn't you like in college by then? No, I was not. I was still in high school. Uh, I, what do you think about di racial diversity? Because mm. that's not I, anything that's necessarily uh, talked about. I mean, the only reason I know and is like, oh, the movies. Yeah. Well, I always thought that, like, you know, when they when they describe, I think a couple of the characters, like Rue, I always thought was, maybe I was, maybe I was mistaken because of the movie. I always thought she was she was black in the, in the story. Um, but yeah, it's, Collins isn't really explicit in the in the Hunger yeah. Games trilogy over the race of the characters. So you make that false assumption that they're all. That the, you make that kind of false whiteness assumption about them, although yeah. I would say Snow is white, but um, oh sure, yeah. you know. So when they cast the movies, they did a good job of diversifying the cast. Yeah, you know, Cinna and and some of the other characters are you know are various races. Mm -hmm. um, although the 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 most manipulative leaders are all like Lily White, you know, and which is really really well done. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that too. That that um, could the Hunger I, Games I, be a post-racist society? Mm, That's like the one thing it has going for it. <laughs> I would imagine that it might happen. You know what, though? I think it would depend on where you are in Panem. Mm. 
you know, I think in some areas there's probably still some prejudice, but for the most part, there's probably some more acceptance because of just we're all being oppressed. But then again, there's also the fact that the oppressed becomes the oppressor to another group. So, yeah. and, and we don't see enough of the society in the Hunger Games to really make that call. Mm-hmm. I can see in the capital, people don't necessarily care in general, but I could also see in the capital that really just kind of disgusting racist idea of being with somebody of another color or national origin is somehow exotic you know that sort of like oh yeah you know that sort of like weird sure. almost like kind of twisted museum like fascination that people have with um you know with other cultures and yeah. wanting to hook up with them or something mm-hmm. um so uh and we- so yeah i can't i can't say either way because i could see either one you could tell me that it's completely post-racist and I'd believe you. Yeah. And you could lay out a very ingrained racism and sec- and and in, in other you know xenophobia or whatever. It, um, and uh, I could totally see that as well. Yeah. It's, it seems I don't even know what sort of name it would be, but just like if you're not yeah. capital, then that's like mm. the worst thing. So that's like the most ist that we have is you know the capital people not seen. Um, the people in the Hunger Games as actual people. They're like things. That is essentially classist and it's essentially like feudalism. Okay. Where the because the the um the the monarchy is snow and the governing body, the nobility is the capital, and the districts are all the serfs and the peasants. And there's some nobility within the districts and there's, you know, here and there. And some of the closer in districts are a little more arist- aristocratic. But as you get out toward like 12, yeah. their their function is to serve the Lord, mm-hmm. not the Lord in terms of, you know, the Lord like out of the Bible, <laughs> no, the, yeah. the Lord, the noble, you know, the Lord of the yeah. manor, the noble. So there there's a feudalistic society kind of set up mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, you are right there. There's that as well. So. All right. Um. Anything else? I would. I, I want to see another book. I'm kind of like with you. I'm like, I want to see her. I kind of. If she never went further back, I'd be like, that's okay. But at the same time, if she did, yeah, and wanted to do another story or another prequel story, I'd be like, yeah, bring it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm game for that. Yeah. yeah either Pan Am, you know how this. I would love to see how it all sort of dissolved and the war and everything. Or yeah. I just feel like there's so much open now that can we not? Are we not going to see? His rise of power. I feel like she can't be done with this. Like just him at the end and having killed High Bottom and with the poison. Um, I feel like we've got to see the rise of of him to power, and I'm I'm interested to see what that looks like. Okay, so we have one last question: Is this required reading? I think it's not required reading. Period. But if you're a Hunger Games fan, I feel like it adds to it. So I think that it's <laughs> – oh, well, I guess I'm contradicting myself when I said, like, we didn't need this, but it was good. Um, oh, oh, no. I I think if you're a huge – how about this? If you're a huge – huge <laughs> I can't do it. If you're a huge Hunger Games fan, 
I think that this is required reading. If you're a Hunger Games fan and you just want to stay in your little bubble of Hunger Games, then it's not. And as a literature buff, it is also not, though it has led me to ponder many things, just like um, with the reader. I think there are lots of questions to ponder. I'm going to agree with you there. That's pretty much exactly what I was thinking. Okay. It's like, you know, the completists and the really hardcore fans. Yeah, definitely. Go read this because you just get so much out of it. If you're a casual fan, you enjoyed the novels. You're like, oh, I'm not really sure. I'd, give, I'd recommend it. I'd, I'd say give it a shot. But, you know, if you if you don't necessarily like it, I totally understand. Uh, and then, yeah, as far as putting it up against some of the other stuff we read, you know, um, even the more popular stuff, I'm like, eh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, very good. I would read the Hunger Games trilogy like – I would say pick up the Hunger Games trilogy first yeah. and, then, and then go read this. You know, this isn't as uh, as integral to the story as the other stuff. So, all right. We do have some feedback this time around. Um, and Stella has a comment from Robert, Robert <gasps> our Scholastic oh, Book nice. Buddy, on Facebook. And he is talking about... Prodigal Summer or something. Again? Well, he he's talking about the feedback from oh, Pro- okay. that we read, I think, okay. on the Macbeth episode. Great so God. I can't take, take any more Prodigal Summer. Yeah, so Robert Ward says, is there anything as wonderful as still laughing when she was attempting to read the comment on Prodigal Summer? I was just smiling ear to ear so much it hurts. Hearing her laugh made me do so as well. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that moment. Yeah, I re-listened to that to see what it was like. And it happens again in the reader, which I guess Mm -hmm. you would have heard by the time this episode comes out. I'm told that I have an infectious laugh that other people want to laugh with me, even if the thing I'm laughing at is completely dumb. But really, it's Robert's (laughs) fault because he's the one who wrote that comment. So I don't know what sort of reaction he was expecting from me, but he got got something. So I'm glad I could also make you laugh, Robert. We need more joy in our days currently. Yeah. Was that the episode or was it Macbeth where I had you laughing like 30 seconds into the episode? I can't remember off the top oh, of my head. Or maybe it was our Paper Girls episode. There was a, there was a recording we did sometime during this whole Nim, thing. was it? Uh, maybe. I don't remember what it was, but there was something where you were like we were like a minute into into oh, the actual yeah. episode, and you just you broke. Um, yeah. So it was some, sometimes. Well, that's yeah. because you, you're generally a straight man, and I'm yeah. the wacky doodle person. <laughs> but then, like, you'll come out with something, and it just catches me off guard. That yeah, I you basically make me laugh whenever you do unsuspecting things. That's because I'm told uh, by people who know me well such as my wife, that I am not funny when I'm trying to be funny. So, okay. All right. Um, we have an email from Michael Ridge, a uh, first email, first time email to the, to the show. So hi, Mike, Michael, um, Tom and Stella. This is about the Macbeth episode. I'm not sure that Shakespeare's plays should be a part of a literature course. The essence of any play is in the performance. Studying the text alone seems like trying to understand a cartoon if you only have printed copies of the animation cells in the dialogue. Mm. You can get the story from the script, and you can make a flipbook of the cells to see a little bit of the movement involved. But you wouldn't say that you understood the cartoon. 
Any play really deserves to be seen before you can think critically about it. The text is a framework for the author's ideas, but it is not the play. The frame can hold many different covers, and Shakespeare's framework is more flexible than most playwrights offer. Unlike a poem or a novel, the play is not complete on the page. Several years ago, I went to a production of the Scottish play at a small liberal arts college. A friend was a, quote, artist in residence for the academic year, and the college had him playing the thing with students filling all the other roles. Now, the story becomes the story of a childless middle-aged soldier who marries a younger woman so that he may have an heir to the honors he has won. His pride makes him want to be remembered, and his wife is the instrument of fate that leads him to his downfall. No words have to be changed, but Shakespeare's amazing Scottish chameleon shows us a new color of the human psyche. I wish the teachers who assign required reading would discuss plays in the context of collaborate art. Yes, Tom Panner, is directed to you because you are teaching the Scottish play this year. Michael Ridge. Um, Quick update. It's... It's tentative that I'm teaching it because I'm kind of looking at how the semester's playing out and it's the first thing to go oh. if I run long because it's the one of the last units in the course. Oh, so so if I have to cut a major work, it's going to be Macbeth. I do, in a big sense, agree with him because the times that I have taught a play that we have then gone on a field trip to see have been the better times. Mm. Now, I will say that I did it in reverse order that we saw the play after reading it, and that was really timing more than anything. But, like, so um, the two that I bring to mind were Twelfth Night and Midsummers, which um, which we saw, we discussed, saw, and then watched, uh, and also watched the uh, movie versions. And... Um, there, it certainly was richer seeing it. And that was the case for me with Twelfth Night, actually. I had never read Twelfth Night prior to seeing a performance on campus. And um, then when I came to read it, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's drama is tough because you want to expose students to it. And you don't always have the ability to... Uh, to go see a live performance and, and see what's going on. And you want them to necessarily, uh, you know, you want them to be able to understand what's going on, especially with Shakespeare. And I think sometimes we, I think sometimes with Shakespeare, we have this idea in our head that he is, we English teachers, especially put him on a pedestal. And, I was talking to my students the other day about this because we were covering a sonnet. We weren't covering a play. We were, we were talking about my mistress eyes or nothing like the sun. And, uh, I, I noted that like, you know, one of the periods in which Shakespeare wrote those sonnets was when the theater was closed, mostly due to, I think outbreaks of plague. And I made the point, you know, Shakespeare was a commercial artist. So, Yes, he's writing this because of the art and all the other pretentious reasons that we give that people have for the muse and all that. But at the meantime, he's also writing it because the man needs to get paid, right? And when you start looking at him from that point of view, that he's the Marty Scorsese or the mm-hmm. or the Spielberg or something of his day, or even even to in another extent, uh, you know, a showrunner of of a show you know, on television, 
it doesn't lessen him. It actually brings him a little more down to earth. We can start understanding like what he's going for and, and how he's doing it. So it kind of makes me think that in in doing Macbeth, if I were to do it, if 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 we can't get to a live performance, if watching a film version of it first and then going and reading the play would be the better approach. To, and and but and discussing it and and breaking down the performance and stuff um, and then you, maybe even not reading the play maybe even just kind of breaking down certain per, you know reading parts of it excerpts of it that we need to break down for just more analysis in terms of the literary analysis objectives of the course and stuff so yeah it does have me thinking about that because um, I want I want my students to be exposed to more and more drama that goes beyond. Um, you know, what they see on some of the crap that they see on TV. Um, and I want them to read beyond Shakespeare, you know, Tennessee Williams or um, Lorraine Hansberry, uh, Arthur Miller, you know, people who were not 16, 15th, 16th, 17th century <laughs> playwrights yeah. and stuff. So, do you have your so, yeah, he's very much right. Scenes? I never have because because um, well actually we used to do a re- out loud reading of a doll's house when I taught that, and one year it was really cool because the kid who played who wanted to play um, Torvald was like really into it, so like he like gave a performance in class, um, but most of the time the kids are like oh don't put me up in front of class like you know. I had kids like I. This is years ago. I remember trying to do a poetry recital. Like you know, you're gonna get in front. You're gonna try to do some public speaking for a unit. We're gonna you're gonna pick a poem that you want to read and you're gonna read it. And a girl like got up, screamed at me, and left the room. Unless I put her up in front of the class. Yeah. So no, I don't have students acted out. Um, Probably should. Probably one of the reasons such a boring teacher. But yeah. Oh, Thomas. Yeah, I guess. My only hesitation is that if you're only watching interpretations, then it's someone else's and not your own. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. So, like, how are you engaging in it? So that's what I wonder, you know, in... Yeah, I don't know. I, I can see... I Like I said, I can see watching the film and then using the text uh, for clarification... But also um, breaking down pieces of it to explore some of the use of language, as well as um, you know, like uh, like I do, we do a lot of quotation analysis when we do Macbeth, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and the reason I actually like I like using that as an exercise for quotation analysis in literary analysis writing because. Um, it forces the students to do an interpretation and explanation, which is one of the things they often lack in my AP class. Like, so what I'll get in a paper, I know I'm going into the weeds on this and I apologize. When I get a paper very often, I'll get them quoting something we read. But if I were to delete the quote from the paper and just read the paragraph, the paragraph doesn't change because they never ever actually explain what the quote's meaning is or how it applies to the point they're making. They just dropped a quote in there. I see. When I make them do it with Shakespeare in the activity, it forces them to explain it because it's in, in it's not indecipherable, but it they have to explain it because, you know, it's it's in a it's in a different dialect. Mm-hmm. So so I think it's it's a good as far as an exercise is concerned, but I don't have to have them read the entire play to do that. You know, I can just give them the context. So. Yeah. 
But yeah, no, I, I appreciated that email because then I don't feel called out. I was just actually just find it. I find it funny because it's just like um, because I'm not offended. Uh, there are there are certain works of literature that if you told me I didn't have to teach them again, um, I'd be like, all right, fine. Let me find something else because I'd rather do something else. One of which is a play by Shakespeare that I don't necessarily enjoy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know. Uh, so would you not consider a play literature? Oh, play is literature. Okay. Yeah, I consider a play liter. I, I consider it. I consider it worthy of, of you know, you know, it's it's um, in that sense, yeah. Um, or at least you know, it's or it's in I have a literature, but it's an, at least it's an art form to be to be studied, you know, in the way that. Um, the film, film in its sense is is in its sense is a piece of literature in that it can be read as well. So, if I'm going for a very broad definition of it, then yes. I wonder what the playwrights think because their hope is that they will sell their play and then their play will be performed. But I feel mm-hmm. like in the back of their mind, they know that everyone who reads their play will not be able to see it performed. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder, you know, what 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 goes into it then when they're writing, and and do they think about that, or are they only thinking about the visual audience rather than the um, the reading audience? It's a good question. I liked his point though, and I liked his story, his anecdote about seeing the play with the the artist in residence playing the thing with the students. So it becomes a story, like you know, the circumstances change. Mm. And instead of this straightforward story about a Scottish king, it's like now the childless middle-aged soldier who marries a younger woman. And even though you don't change the text, the context changes a little bit. Um, which we see with some of his comedies. And granted, you, you, you're not adapting the taming of the shrewd word for word in 10 things I hate about you. But I still think that does speak to some of the things he's talking about, how Shakespeare's framework is more flexible than most playwrights offer because he can be, he he is adaptable in a way that so many aren't, Mm. you know, like you can't do the, you might be able to do the crucible in a more modern setting, but the crucible really has to be Salem and um, a raisin in the sun has to be segregation era, uh, a city. It's Chicago in the play. I guess you could make it New York, but you still need a family moving out to a suburb that's all white and has the legal recourse to prevent them from doing it. You can't take, you can't take place now, you know, or you'd have to change some fundamental things about that. And Shakespeare's play does offer a significant amount of flexibility in terms of what you can do with the, the setting and everything in the context without changing much of the actual text. So I, I really like that point that he had there. Well, that's it. I believe it was <gasps> anything else about the, uh, about the email there. Uh, I do not. Yeah. And we are, we are almost at episode 50. <gasps> we're, we're setting something up for that and we hope that it's going to be fun. Um, maybe, uh, but, uh, before that we have episode 49, Stella, it's your pick. What are we reading? Oh my gosh. Well, I hesitate to do this because what was um, that noise? it was, a, it was a groan. It was a, hes- <laughs> it was a hesitating, like, oh man, I think I might have to do this. I hesitate because I know that Thomas does not like this novel, but it, the, 
this episode would come out in December, is that correct? Uh, not this one, but the one I'm about to announce. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, seasonally, it kind of fits. And I do know that it's on Tom's list, so he's going to have to read it sometime anyway. Oh, and I no. own it, and it's shorter. Oh, so God. <laughs> we're going to do Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. Ugh. Yeah, I know. I know. It was between that and another one, but I'm kind of saving the other one for a bit. So I'll give you relief in the next one. I think you'll like my other pick. But this one, I thought okay. topically, you know, the the winter and the, the sled ride and all that. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. Yeah. Here comes that tree. Um, um. Sure. So... <laughs> Mrs. Tabor, if you're listening, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> it is on your list, I is didn't it like not? It, the first... it was because okay. it was it was on my it was yeah. uh, it's on my list because it was a book I read in high school. So, so. see, I'm helping you out. You are helping me out. Yeah. So, all right. Well, until then, um, don't you may not uh, you may or may not get some email uh, next episode. It depends on, um, or at least they might be about the reader. It depends on our recording schedule. Uh, until then, but please do send us emails about episodes old and new, um, and share us, like us, comment, Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcast reviews, all that stuff. Uh, and until next time, thank you very much again for listening, and take care. And don't ever ever take credit for a classmate's essay unless <laughs> unless you actually worked on it <laughs> that's true because we we're teachers we know indeed we know we'll give you colorful snakes yes we will we will good night goodbye for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com we will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.